Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. My name is Frank. I am the host of the show, and I'm happy you can join and listen. If you've listened to previous episodes of the show, thank you for coming back. If this is the first time you're listening, I think you're picking a very good episode to listen to. I'm going to be interviewing author Scott Ditchie, author of Cigar City Mafia, which chronicles the underworld and mafia influence in Tampa, Florida, a city where you would not normally expect this type of activity to take place. Most news reports and movies detail mob activity in places like Chicago, New York, and Las Vegas. So it's very interesting to know that Tampa has a long history in regards to organized crime and specifically the mafia. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, and CastBox under Let Me Bend Your Ear Podcast. I would ask that you please subscribe to the show on any one of these podcast apps so that when new episodes are available, they'll be delivered directly to your device. If you are listening to this show on iTunes, I would ask that you rate and review uh, this show or any show that you listen to, but specifically this show. I'm very proud uh, of this particular episode. I was very happy uh, that Scott was gracious enough to agree to do the interview. Uh, this is a very interesting book that he has written. Uh, came out in 2004. He's also written a follow-up book uh, called The Silent Dawn, which is a book specifically about Santo Traficante Jr. I'm about to start that book. I've read Cigar, Cigar City Mafia twice. He's also got a book that was released late last year detailing the rise of the mob in New Jersey, where he's originally from. So I would highly recommend uh, any one of those books. You can purchase them on Amazon. But again, I was very grateful to have Scott come on and do this interview with me uh, to talk about the mafia in Tampa. Uh, I think it's a very fascinating subject. I know uh, Americans have a decades-long fascination with the mob and mafia hits and stories of, of, of crime lords and dons and rivaling factions and all of the crime that they're involved in. So I think you really will enjoy this uh, the episode today. I think it's going to be very interesting, and you're going to enjoy it uh, immensely. Again, uh, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, I would um, ask that you rate and review. I really want to start with this episode, hopefully really spiking subscribers and listeners and downloaders of the podcast. And I ask this, one, because, of course, I want the show to become popular, and two, rating and reviewing will generate interest in the podcast and also raise the profile of the podcast when people search out uh, for this type of show. So I would ask that you please do that. This will allow us to obtain guests more frequently. As I've stated in previous podcasts, I know that the most compelling show will be a show where I can interact with other people, whether it's people I know that are experts on certain subjects or in this interview here with Scott who is an expert and done a lot of research on the mob in Tampa, I could easily summarize the book that I read and talk about my favorite parts of the book. But of course, it's much more compelling to have Scott on and have him and I discuss his book and what I took out of it and have him add his immense knowledge of the subject. So again, if you rate and review the show, this is very important, whether it's this episode or, or subsequent episodes or episodes before, but I really hope this episode becomes a springboard uh, for people who haven't sampled the podcast before to check it out. Uh, really want to grow the show. 
if we can show growth and show listener base, subscriber base, then that makes my job easier in obtaining other guests like Scott to come on, authors of books, people in politics or people in sports or people that work in the film business. I'm always attempting to get guests in all three of these areas of expertise. Now, I know this particular episode is a little off the beaten path as it doesn't deal with sports, politics, or movies, but I can say confidently when you hear the conversation, politics and movies are discussed in this particular episode. So actually two of the three things that I've centered the show on are actually specifically discussed in this movie. And I could even argue that sports is thrown in there if you want to talk about betting, even though that's not really uh, a part of this particular discussion. Uh, So really it's uh, sports, or excuse me, not sports, uh, movies and the political influence that organized crime had in Tampa. So again, really looking forward to this episode being a springboard. I was very happy to do this interview and uh, I think it came out really well. I hope you enjoy this interview with Scott Ditchie. And again, rate and review on Apple Podcast. And now my interview with Scott Ditchie. All right, pleased to have on the show today author Scott Ditchie. He is the author of Cigar City Mafia, A Complete History of the Tampa Underworld, also The Silent Dawn, The Criminal Underworld of Santo Traficante Jr., and his most recent book, Garden State Gangland, The Rise of the Mob in New Jersey. Uh, Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you uh, for agreeing to do this. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, I wanted to start with uh, kind of your background. Um, what what led you? You've written written several books about uh, organized crime in Florida and now in New Jersey. What what led you to this uh, area of interest? Um, well, I grew up in New Jersey, and um, you know, right outside New York City, so always influenced by the news, and uh, obviously a lot of organized crime stuff going on in in that area. My mom was always a big fan of the old gangster movies. Um, but uh, I, my passion for it really started uh, after seeing the movie Goodfellas in theaters. And I was like, oh, I got to read the book that that was based on such a great movie. And I read, you know, Wise Guy by Pledge, and that kind of led to more books. And then I started doing some research. And at that time, I moved from New Jersey. Um, I went to school in St. Petersburg and moved out to the Tampa Bay, St. Pete area. Um, and then um, met a gentleman online, David Critchley, who's a historian in England, who's written a, a, a book about organized crime. And he said, hey, I have some material, some congressional hearings, the Kefauver Commission hearings from 1950 from Tampa. And he said, would you be interested in that? And uh, that was around 94, no, around 95, actually. Um, so I got a copy of those, started reading that, and became fascinated with all the gangster history of Tampa. And then from there, kind of led to just doing a little bit of writing for websites and couple uh, periodicals. And then in 2004, Cigar City Mafia was my first book. Uh, about the Tampa Mafia came out and, and, you know, since then it's kind of snowballed and, you know, done other writings on other mob families and other areas. And then, um, like you said, my most recent book, I kind of brought it back to my, uh, my home state of New Jersey, doing a, doing a book about kind of an overarching history of organized crime in Jersey. So, you know, really kind of started, uh, you know, about 25 years ago and it's kind of uh, snowballed since then. No, it's interesting that you bring up Goodfellas. Um, I grew up in Tampa and, really had no idea of the significant mafia presence. Now I was a teenager in the eighties. So 87, I graduated high school and I just vaguely remember 
uh, the Santos Traficante Jr. racketeering trial was kind of in the news in 86. And mm -hmm. I remember at the time even just almost dismissing it going, wait, there's there's mob people in Tampa and was kind of surprised that that was a presence and then kind of really didn't think about it. And then I saw Goodfellas in the movies in 1990 as well. You know, classic Scorsese film, love it. I'm a film buff. And then really the, the almost throwaway scene when they both come down to Tampa uh, to collect uh, a debt. And I was like, wow, they came and I don't, and, I, and again, I was like, oh, they just came to Tampa because there was gambling going on, really not making a connection of a significant uh, enough of a mob influence in Tampa to bring people from New York down to, to, to collect a debt and kind of dismissed it from then. And then your book came out and then I was like, wow, you know, being frequenting Ybor City, you know, through its evolution in the 80s and 90s is basically a party place for clubs and things like that. And then real, realizing the history from your book was really fascinating and it made me dig into it more and that's why i wanted to have you on because it's been a few years since i read the book but uh i was um thinking about politics because this podcast does politics and really made me think of your book again because it's like i'm sure and remembering the weaving interweaving of the mob and the politicians in tampa um as far as when i reread the book i I've broke it down to like three different eras basically the early um, years of the Tampa Mafia with the rise of Bolita, and I can have you talk about that and how it kind of was a uh, area where organized crime started, and then of course prohibition being kind of like the main marker for the rise of organized crime in the entire country as well as in Tampa. Uh, can we kind of start there as far as the early origins of, of what happened in Tampa with the rackets and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as you know, your your listeners may not. Um, there's a, there's a section of Tampa called Ebor City that you referenced, which is really kind of a very unique uh, neighborhood, especially in the Deep South at that time. It was um, started in the uh, late 1800s and became a um, a place where Sicilians, Spanish, Cubans, a small German and Jewish population all kind of gathered together, and it was centered on the cigar industry in, in the Tampa area. And, um, you know, because it was a tight-knit immigrant community in the Deep South in the early 1900s, there was a lot of mistrust of, uh, of law enforcement outside. So you started having some of that kind of blackhand activity, and you see the same thing in communities in Boston, New York, Chicago, uh, New Orleans, all around that time frame where, you know, local criminal gangs would, like, kidnap a, a grocer and send a, a ransom letter to his family. And the family wouldn't go to the police, they would pay it off and... It was, you know, kind of that in the early years, but what really kind of jump-started the mob in Tampa, much like it did in the rest of the country, was prohibition. And Tampa is uniquely situated on the West Coast, um, has a very large natural protected harbor, Tampa Bay. And there was a lot of ties between the island of Cuba and Tampa because of the, the Cuban population in Tampa. So Tampa became a pretty important port of entry for rum and corn, sugar, and molasses, which were raw materials used in distillery operations during Prohibition, and also became a very important way station at that time for narcotics. Uh, there were a number of um, narcotics trafficking operations that originated out of Tampa at that time, some going up to Kansas City and ultimately to Chicago. Um, and there was also a, a thriving illegal immigrant smuggling um, operations that were going on at that time, too. So that really kind of uh, started the early rackets of organized crime in Tampa, but the other thing that was going on at this time, too, was the rise of illegal gambling, um, especially a game called Bolita. And that really became kind of the dominant um, moneymaker for organized crime. And, and the Bolita racket was really where things kind of bled into politics in Tampa as well. 
And can you describe, because I know outside maybe of Florida, um, what exactly, how was the Bolita game played and why did it become so popular so quickly? Yeah, there's, and I actually, uh, I kind of split lead up into two different games because it, it started as a specific game that kind of became a catch-all name for, uh, for general numbers. So the initial game of Bolita is a uh, where you would have 100 balls numbered 1 to 100, kind of similar to a lottery, and they would throw it in a cloth sack and they would shake it up and people would bet penny or nickel on a number to be called, and they would throw Bolita they would literally toss the bag into a crowd and someone would grab onto a number and they would cut the bag there. And that ball would be the winning number. And that was the early version of Bolita. And there's, there's still um, at the Tampa museum and uh, university of South Florida still have uh, uh, old Bolita sets. Um, what's interesting though, is if you look at some of those old Bolita sets, especially the one uh, uh, that I got to see from university of South Florida, you pick up the balls there's like three or four of them that are really heavy. <laughs> and uh, what they would do is they would fill those with lead or sawdust, or, you know, stuff that would just make those balls heavier. So when they would throw it into the crowd, you know, the chances of just those few numbers being called would rise dramatically. Um, and that's really how it early started. And they would do these in cafes and, and places like the El Dorado, which was a gambling casino in Ybor City at the time. Uh, it kind of evolved into more of a general numbers racket somewhere around the late 1930s, early 1940s. And that's when it really became very popular. So you can go to various different Bolita sellers in the neighborhood, whether it's the ice cream man or, you know, a guy in a corner or somebody at a grocery store. And, you know, at that time, you can bet a penny, a nickel, a dime and make $50, $100, which was a lot of money back then. And it was very easy to play. And it became kind of part of life, uh, uh, for a lot of people in Ybor City, West Tampa, in the greater Tampa area at that time. And all those pennies and nickels and dimes uh, amounted up to quite a bit of money and revenue coming into organized crime. And I read in the book, too, as, as that game rise, I think the thing also that struck me was that it appeared it was a game that all people from all walks of life played in all financial statuses. So you had um, the lower income people, the working people uh, of Ybor City and Tampa playing it, and also uh, high rollers playing it in the higher end clubs in Ybor City as well. So it was kind of a game that went across the board. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a unifier of people in Tampa. And, and it's funny when I do, um, I do walking tours of Ybor City once a month in, in the cooler rooms. Um, and I can't tell you how many people, uh, older people that grew up in Ebor, either, you know, their parents play Belita or their grandparents play Belita or some of them, you know, remembered Belita as a kid. And, um, it was just, it was, you know, a big part of it. And a lot of people became Belita sellers and Belita runners. So it was, um, it wasn't really viewed as a harmful vice. It was just nothing different than the lottery. In fact, uh, Belita in, in some forms existed in Tampa in through the 1970s until, uh, the, the Florida lottery. Now, of course you can go to Publix and, you know, make your pick three selections. But, uh, you know, back then it was very much like just playing the lottery. And as, uh, the, as it evolved, as Belita became such a huge, uh, part of Ybor city, um, the next, uh, or the first figure I read in the book that really came to prominence was, uh, Charlie wall, uh, who was known in your book as the Dean of the underworld. Um, it seems like he was able to, through his, um, mathematical abilities and his um, while was able to kind of consolidate that into basically becoming the first, if you will, um, 
boss of that area um, running those rackets. Yeah, Charlie Wool was an interesting figure. You know, uh, he didn't come from the streets. He didn't grow up in Ybor City. He came from a very prominent family uh, related to some of the kind of the blue bloods, if you will, of Tampa at that time. And um, one of the things that was interesting about about Charlie Wall is that he uh, he you know took a different path in life, and he became a craps dealer, and then uh, he was a morphine addict. Uh, he was involved in narcotics. Uh, but by the mid-1920s, he starts to emerge as a, as a power broker, um, leveraging his family's uh, contacts in the judiciary and law enforcement, and takes over illegal gambling in Tampa and kind of develops Alita. And what was interesting, too, is he had kind of a, a multi-ethnic crew. He had Spanish and Cubans and Italians working for him. And by the night, by the early 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, he was really the, the powerhouse in Tampa at that time. What happens then is you start to see, starting around 1928, what's become known as the era of blood in Tampa, when the uh, the Sicilian mafia, which was uh, nascent at that time and, and getting stronger, vying for control of Belita and other rackets and there's internal fighting. And, and basically from about 1928 to through about 1940, you have a series of gangland killings that, that rock Tampa and, and really for the people in Tampa at that time, kind of show them how ingrained this, this organized crime element is uh, not only just in Ybor city, but across the area. Yeah. And that was exactly what I wanted to get into is the era of blood. Um, the Sicilians coming in to muscle in on the rackets that were run by Charlie wall. Now in the book, you discuss the battle between Charlie wall and Ignacio Antonori. And then within that story, you start to find out, um, Sancho Traficante senior working under Antonori. And then this, how this war kind of escalated resulting in the violence. And then, uh, eventually the, the rise of Santo senior, uh, to become the mob boss of Tampa. Yeah, so throughout the 1930s, it's kind of a, a tit for tat. You know, you see guys from Charlie Wallside dying. You see mafioso being killed. Um, guys like uh, Joe Faglica, you know, killed eating French fries outside his lunch stand uh, on Nebraska Avenue and uh, just outside downtown Tampa. But by 1940, Ignacio Antonori, who was the head of the Sicilian Mafia at that time, is killed. Uh, but Charlie Wall is pretty weakened as well. He had survived three attempts on his life. A lot of his guys were, were shot. And into this kind of power vacuum steps, Santo Traficante Sr. And in fact, Charlie Wall uh, later told the Kefauver Committee in 1950 that by the early 1940s, Traficante Sr. effectively kind of pushed Charlie Wall out of the rackets in Tampa. So by the early 1940s, you see the emergence of the mafia in Tampa uh, as the, the dominant organized crime group. Um, and, and it's not to say things went really smooth. There were a couple killings in the 40s, and you see a reemergence around 1950 of, of another kind of spate of gangland killings, more kind of internal house cleaning and internal uh, strife than kind of different groups fighting against each other. But, um, but you know, Santo Traficante Sr. and then his son, Santo Jr., become the dominant organized crime bosses and, and the name that most people are familiar with when you talk about, you know, the mob or mafia in Tampa area or Florida in general for that matter. And yeah, and it's a fascinating story with Senior, but even more with Junior. So Senior dies um, in 1954 and names his son uh, to take over. And the fascinating thing about Santo Junior, I think from when he took over until his death, was it seemed like he was the typical Don in a lot of ways. 
you know, killings happened. Um, <clears throat> he ruled the area, but kind of did it in a very low key, almost invisible way, if you will. He basically commanded the same respect that you would see a Dom maybe from New York or Chicago or anywhere else. Uh, but I think he did it in a quiet way because of his, uh, the thing I was fascinated about is his fluency in Spanish, which really ingrained him in the entire Florida area. And of course, the time that he spent when he was younger in Cuba, um, running the casino there. And I think all of that skill set uh, allowed him to be a Don in kind of a different way that most people, I think, uh, equate mafia Dons with, you know, loud um, out there like John Gotti. He was really kind of a silent um, leader in that sense. Yeah, he, um, even by the way he looks, he was very, you know, circumspect, very, you know, looked like a school teacher. If you see photos of him, he um, was never very flashy, never very ostentatious. Uh, he did have some very good connections with uh, other mob figures, Carlos Marcello in New Orleans, um, the mob families in New York, uh, Chicago. So he, he had the respect and the connections of Angelo Bruno from Philadelphia, um, these were all mobsters and mob bosses that we're seeing with Traficante in a number of times. And um, one of the things about Florida is that Miami was considered kind of open territory, like any mob family can come down there. So by the 1960s, you have representatives from almost every major mafia family in the Miami area. And Traficante himself moves there in the 1960s and lives most of the time in Miami. Um, and there's you know, voluminous FBI surveillance reports of him meeting with Meyer Lansky, Angelo Bruno, the Fischetti brothers from Chicago, Sam Giancana. So it shows you that even though Miami was an open territory, you know, Traficante was afforded that uh, respect to be shown if someone comes into town, you know, they, they would go meet him first. And the other fascinating con uh, concept when I reread the book, I had actually not remembered because uh, I live in Orlando now is the cracker mob, which was, uh, the organized crime group that kind of ran numbers and gambling rackets, prostitution and drugs, uh, in the central Florida area. So Orlando, Lakeland, Polk County through there and the relationship that, uh, junior had with Harlan Blackburn, um, throughout those years as well, kind of helping to spread his power base through central Florida. I mean, I know South Florida is not, but the central Florida aspect was, was interesting to me as well. Yeah, it, um, Central Florida, for the most part, even Orlando, and, and you know, growing up in the area, you, you probably know for for a good part of the 20th century it was pretty rural. Um, wasn't really super as you know metro area as it is now. Um, and there was a group of uh, loosely affiliated, you know, criminals out in the central and kind of the more desolate rural counties in, in mid Florida, extended out to the East Coast, um, and the the kind of the titular head of that group was Harlan Blackburn and he, he operated out of Orlando and make kind of their moniker was the cracker mob. And they were um, kind of controlled, like you said, most of those rackets in the central part of the state. And he partnered up a lot with Traficante to work uh, Belita and gambling operations throughout the area. So this way that Traficante was able to extend his reach with some additional muscle because the you know the Tampa family, the mafia family at its height was was pretty small compared to you know some of the big New York Chicago families. So by kind of partnering up with Blackburn, he was able to expand his reach. Blackburn had additional muscle on his side, so it was it was a win win for both. And uh, Blackburn, like Traficante, led that group for a good part of the 20th century. Uh, unfortunately, unlike Traficante, he never spent a day in jail. Blackburn spent a lot of time in jail, so he wasn't quite as, as wily and crafty a Don <laughs> as Santa was. But uh, 
but he still had a lot of influence, uh, both politically and um, in the criminal world throughout most of the central part of Florida. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue to, to the next thing I wanted to discuss, uh, politics. And, and that was the other reason um, that uh, um, sparked me to, to, to reach out to you to talk about this, because obviously when you watch um, any movie, any mob movie or movie about organized crime, doesn't even have to be the mafia, uh, any, any area where organized crime is entrenched, there's always that element of them understanding that for them to succeed in the criminal enterprises in a particular jurisdiction, they have to have people in their pocket. And obviously the Tampa mob was no exception to that. So can you describe or, or kind of talk about how interwoven or how deeply they were in politics in Tampa and Hillsborough County? Absolutely. Um, it kind of starts off during that Charlie Wall era. Like I said, you know, growing up among the elite of Tampa, Charlie knew a lot of people that were judges, that were politicians that became either on the county commission, city council. Um, and that led to a lot of uh, voting irregularities and a lot of, uh, voter, uh, I would call it suppression, basically having a bunch of goons at a polling mm -hmm. station with baseball bats threatening people to vote a certain way. Uh, I believe it was the 1936 elections that the uh, governor actually called the National Guard in to oversee local elections in Tampa. Um, from that point on, things became a little bit um, smarter, if you will, from the underworld side. And it became more of a system of payoffs and graft. Um, for example, in the 1947 city of Tampa election, um, the mob spent over $26,000 funneling money to certain candidates and, and making sure their people got elected. And they would run it through intermediaries. Uh, for example, from in the 1940s, one of the big political players in Tampa was a guy named Jimmy Velasco, and he was the uh, liaison between the upper world and the underworld. Um, Jimmy was one of the victims of the Arab blood. He was killed on December 12, 1948. And after he was killed, his brothers found a ledger where he detailed all the payoffs to people like uh, the sheriff of Hillsborough County, Hugh Culbreth, um, the mayor, Curtis Hickson, judges, lawyers. Um, they even implicated the state attorney at that time. So the when that came out and it was subsequently followed up by the Kefauver Committee in 1950, which was a nationwide congressional hearing looking into organized crime that actually came to Tampa mm -hmm. for a couple of days. I think the people in Tampa, that was the first time that really exposed how deeply entrenched the mob was. You, you only need to look at the, the sheriff of Hillsborough County at that time, Hugh Culberth, not only was involved in kind of looking the other way, but he was actively involved in criminal enterprise and real estate transactions with, with organized crime figures. Um, I think it was a shock for a lot of people in Tampa. I think it maybe confirmed their suspicions for many years that there was a level of corruption here that was um, deeply entrenched. And it, it, it took a while to, to get out of that. Um, you know, certainly, you know, I wasn't here in the 80s, but, you know, there was a time when the FBI arrested most of the county commission. Um, there was the courthouse scandals uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s that had some fingerprints of some of the remaining members of organized crime. Um, so the corruption is gone, a, a lot of it, but it, it, because it was so entrenched, it took a long time uh, for law enforcement. And, you know, me speaking with people from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the FBI, you know, the political aspects of organized crime in Tampa were, were very deeply tied together for a very long time. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and reading in the book, you could see how in Trent's, and there's some names of uh, people in Tampa uh, would know well if they've lived in Tampa for a long period of time. Uh, the names you mentioned, I, I noticed E.J. Salcinas. I even noticed um, there was um, rumors and thought that uh, Detective Walter Heinrich, who uh, became the sheriff of Hillsborough County for quite a long period of time, may have been involved. There was never, I know your book says there was never really any proof, just kind of innuendo and kind of circumstantial evidence. Uh, so there's some big names that were involved, uh, either trying to fight the mob or uh, uh, taking payoffs. Now, I want to get into kind of a, uh, an interesting side aspect of, of Santo Jr., uh, which is the other reason I really know him, and I think a lot of people know him peripherally, is his relationship to, one, the assassination or attempted assassinations of Fidel Castro and his link to the JFK assassination. So I know those are two fascinating aspects of Santo Jr.'s life that uh, kind of uh, almost take a life of their own when you look at all the conspiracy theories on the JFK assassination. But um, how was Santo involved in that and why was he consulted or, or involved in those activities? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing I do want to real quick, uh, you mentioned uh, EJ Salcinas. Um, uh, I will say in, in, you know, that a lot of that stuff about him was more innuendo and, and further research that I've done over the years. I, I think a lot of that was, was unfounded. Uh, his app, uh, and some of the other politicians like Mayor Greco, a lot of people have attributed, you know, crime ties to, and, and I, I think a lot of that is just, you know, Tampa was a small city. A lot of these guys knew people on both sides of the lawn and, and being politicians. A lot of time you have to shake hands with everybody. So, right. um, I just wanted to clarify that a little bit about that. No, thanks for um, clarifying. The one thing, though, that I think, um, like you said, that's really fascinating about Traficante is, you know, here's a guy from Tampa, which, um, you know, was a small city in the 1950s, um, 1960s, suddenly, you know, gets thrust into, you know, Western Hemisphere geopolitics. And this all stems from Havana, Havana. Uh, the ownership of some of the hotels and casinos in Havana by organized crime. And Santo Traficante Jr. had some very extensive uh, holdings and uh, both uh, above ground and underground holdings in Havana. When Cash, well, take a step back for a second. One of the things that people probably don't know is that Fidel Castro did a lot of fundraising in the United States. Uh, and he came to Tampa a few times. And there's a lot of anecdotal evidence um, that he met with Traficante Sr. and Jr. back when he was doing some of his early fundraising here. This was you know, much earlier prior to 1959. Um, when Fidel Castro starts gaining traction in the guerrilla war against Fulgencio Batista, there's a lot of information and a lot of um, evidence that the mob had also been paying off and supplying Castro with equipment and guns, um, and from, you know, from a business perspective, they probably viewed it as, well, if he takes over, we'll have him in our pocket, too. Of course, when Castro takes over, he promptly kicks the U.S. gangsters out. Uh, Traficante, Traficante stays in Cuba and um, gets jailed by uh, Castro. And the only time Traficante uh, Jr. has ever spent any time in, in prison. Um, one of the interesting tidbits of his time at the Triscornia Detention Center in Cuba was that he was visited there by one of his uh, employees, casino employees, a guy named Lewis McWillie out of Dallas. And uh, supposedly, according to a number of eyewitnesses and, and evidence, um, Lewis McWillie was accompanied by Jack Ruby. 
visiting uh, Traficante in prison. Traficante later denied that this happened, but there were a lot of eyewitnesses that said that that was the case, which is odd and interesting in its own right. Um, so Traficante gets released from prison and heads back to the United States in Miami. At that time, the CIA has started ramping up their uh, anti-Castro operations. So in, um, oh, I think it's early, it's in 1961, I might get the year, it's 61, 62, um, there's a meeting at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, and um, at the meeting is Robert Mayhew, and I, and I spoke to Robert Mayhew before he died about this, and he, we spent some time going over talking about the meeting, and he was hired as a liaison from CIA, and he hired, and I'm throwing up air quotes, you can't see him, but hired uh, um, Johnny Rosselli. He was a Chicago mobster who had relocated to Los Angeles. Uh, Sam Giancana and Santo Traficante kill Castro. And the CIA figured that with their ties back on the island and some of the underworld element that was still on Q- in Cuba, that they could um, they could get this done. And obviously Fidel you know, just passed away a couple of years ago, though so that there wasn't any real major effort by the mob. But you see a lot of connections with organized crime figures in anti-Castro operation uh, in the Miami area. There are a lot of Cuban organized crime figures that were tied to Traficante both on the island of Cuba and Miami that are also involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion and some of these other EIA operations. So you get down kind of this murky, you know, mix of politics and crime. And this all feeds into the conspiracy theories around the JFK assassination and a lot of the major figures that are named as part of the conspiracy um, can easily be traced back to this nexus between uh, Santo Traficante, uh, Carlos Marcelo in New Orleans and anti-Castro activities with the CIA at that time. It's, um, it's a fun rabbit hole to go down. It's a deep one <laughs> that just keeps getting, I think that's why it's fascinating because you're never, I don't know if we'll ever really truly know the answer. And, you know, even if, um, even if you accept that Oswald did it alone, the, all the other stuff behind it is just so fascinating. Um, but, you know, Traficant squarely there in that milieu in the early 1960s, right there with the CIA and, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion and all this stuff that really gripped the nation at that time. Um, so he was, he was definitely in the middle of that. Yeah, no, definitely. That's definitely, uh, and I know you're, and you pointed out many times in the book where uh, the rabbit hole aspect of it, I mean, you could spend, you know, there's hundreds of books been written on that. So you could probably write a a whole other book just on that aspect alone. Um, I wanted to, one thing that kind of fascinated me about um, the, the era of blood and the murders that went on was the the method is interesting to me um, that it seemed the method of murder for choice was either driving by and shooting people with shotguns or knocking on the door and shooting people with shotguns. I was wondering, is there any reason why that was the particular method of disposing of either competitors or people that they thought were going to rat or whatever reason someone was ordered to be killed? That seemed to be the method of choice and they didn't vary from that very often. Uh, yeah, I had a couple of theories about that. I, I, had, I had a guy um, on one of my eboard tours a few years ago who was a gun uh, historian and he was explaining to me at there was something to do, and I, I can't remember the exact thing about availability of certain types of weapons at the time that might have favored the shotgun more. Um, there was a longtime rumor that one of the main hitters was a guy from the either the Jacksonville or Central Florida area who was a hunter. 
And um, Johnny Scarface Rivera, who's a longtime mob associate, uh, joked to an undercover cop in the 80s. He said, every time I saw that guy, that hunter come to town, I knew someone was going to get whacked. Um, the other thing was, like I said, the availability of shotguns. A lot of people hunted at that time. Tampa, just outside of downtown, was very, uh, you know, a lot of woods. Um, so I think it probably had to do with uh, availability. And, you know, there, there might be an aspect of signature at some point with that being kind of the signature weapon. But it is interesting, you know, when people think of the 1920s and 30s and gangsters killing each other, you think of the, the Tommy gun and that kind of Chicago image and that wasn't what it was like in tampa um, and yeah a lot of them were up close and personal hits and a lot of them were drive-bys the drive-by shooting was was very popular in tampa uh, probably more so than any other uh, state or city I should, where the mob was active yeah no as i was reading the book rereading the book uh yeah that's the thing as a, as you as you document the many killings it's it's it seems like they were the exact same method just location was different and people were different so but like you said maybe it was a lot of them were done by the same person so maybe that's why a lot of it was the same way um now leading leading out of the 60s into the 70s um it kind of changed a little bit i know um the influx of drugs kind of exploded all over the country in the 70s and how did traficante kind of evolve um from the 60s into the 70s into the kind of the more modern era mafia per se well yeah the mob in tampa started shifting in the in the 1960s traffic kind of spent a lot of time in miami um and by the time he you know he starts we look in the early 70s you kind of have a new generation of wise guys coming up in tampa so you know that demographic shift a uh, little brasher a little bit more into drugs prostitution uh, operating out of uh, strip clubs and bars in the tampa area and th there's there's kind of like a um kind of like a dividing line almost between the old school, the old time uh, mob kingpins and, uh, and the new, you know, younger guys. Traficante himself, you start to get the feeling in the 70s or start to see that he's taken a little bit more of a hands-off approach to the day-to-day -day stuff going on in Tampa. Um, and he starts to deal with some more law enforcement pressure. You know, law enforcement spends a little bit more time trailing him, gets more surveillance on him. Um, his health starts failing at that time. He eventually dies in, in 87 you know, after undergoing heart surgery. But there's starting uh, incidents and recordings of heart attacks and other issues starting in the 1970s. So this, this, these younger guys in Tampa uh, start making a name for themselves, dealing drugs. You actually have um, uh, some shootings and even a bombing in Tampa in the 1970s uh, as a result of these, uh, they call them kind of the lounge wars where these guys were running drugs out of different bars and lounges and strip clubs in Tampa at that time. Uh, it really kind of becomes more of a street level racket. Um, kind of at the same time too, uh, you start to see a little bit of an influx of, of Northern wise guys more into, into the Florida area. And um, it, that, at that time you start seeing some demographic shifts and, and some of the old timers in Tampa start retiring, passing away uh, and Polita starts to change so it's a little bit kind of like a churn so by the time like the late 70s come around and things start kind of settling down you know the mob starts shifting away from those street level rackets into more uh you know white collar type things and uh diversity uh, um doing more uh sports gambling and sports betting as opposed to belita so you start seeing that change occur and that that was all 
during the early to mid 1970s where that would come up. And I wanted to, on uh, reading, reading the book as well, um, a popular mob movie, of course, Goodfellas, probably being the quintessential one, but there was another very good movie made called Donnie Brasco with Johnny Depp and Al Pacino. And you reference it in your book. And I wanted you to, if you could talk about that, I know this is around the Lounge War era where um, Donnie Brasco actually becomes involved uh, during his undercover operation in Florida operations. What, what did he do um, at that time? If you could talk about that, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things I always start, uh, start this off with is in the movie, Donnie Brasco, there are scenes that take place in Florida where they interact with Santo Traficante, but in the, uh, in the movie, they all take place in Miami, which, uh, it didn't happen. All that place, all that took place in the Tampa Bay area, but I guess Tampa is not uh, glamorous enough for Hollywood. Um, so what happened is in the, in the late 1970s, the FBI really started, um, uh, upping their game in terms of following and influencing and infiltrating organized crime. And, and in the New York area, um, there was a, an undercover cop or undercover FBI agent, I should say, um, uh, Joe Pistone, who took on the name Donnie Brasco, and, and he infiltrated a crew of uh, the Bonanno crime family in New York. And during the course of that investigation, they had a, an associate that was in the Tampa area, and they saw an opportunity to open up a uh, open up some gambling operations in Tampa and relocate it down here. And from the FBI's perspective, this was a really a great chance for them not only to ensnare the, the Bonanno crime family guys, but also maybe get a chance to ensnare Traficante, who had kind of slipped through their fingers and they never really had enough to charge him with in the past. So the FBI set up a, a fake casino that was located up on US-19 in, in Pasco County, which is just kind of northwest of Tampa. And they had video, wired it, and they sent in undercover agents to, to staff it. And Joe Pistone or Donnie Brasco kind of lured all the mobsters together and they, they all invested in, in, in opening this, this casino and they, they got, they corrupted some of the Pasco County Sheriff's uh, deputies. Um, and they also met with Santo Traficante who ostensibly gave his okay for them to operate in the area with the understanding that, you know, they would kick money back up to him. And there's some really good, um, surveillance photos of them meeting with Traficante, uh, all these Bonanno crime family figures like uh, Sonny Black Napolitano. When the FBI eventually raided this um, casino the night that it opened, or a couple nights uh, later, they arrested everyone and they arrested and indicted members of the Bonanno family. They did indict Traficante, but at that time, um, he, his health had started to deteriorate somewhat. And his uh, his lawyer was able to kind of stall that. So even though he was indicted for racketeering, uh, Traficante never went to trial for for the Donnie Brasco case, and was kind of stalled on based on some of his his health issues at the time. But it's a it's a it was probably a the best chance that the FBI ever had to get a an informant or someone in there close to Traficante. But even that from FBI agents that I talked to, um, they still didn't have as much as they wanted to on him. And, and I think Santo was at that point, you know, pretty cagey and pretty, uh, uh, um, standoffish on some stuff. So, but, um, it, it was a fascinating case and, and was really one of the big early success stories for the FBI in their, in their war against uh, organized crime. 
Yeah, that's the fascinating aspect of, of Santo Jr.'s uh, reign is that he was successively, successfully, other than his small stint in Cuba, able to avoid jail time. I think a combination of smarts and wildness and then obviously at the end of his life, his health contributed to maybe that last time not being uh, sent to prison. It, it's It's pretty amazing that he was able to have that much power and basically never really spend a day in jail. Uh, and the other thing that I found out fascinating about the Tampa mob as well is, is no one of any consequence ever turned against the mob there. And I don't know if that was, you know, Santo led with, with silence, but behind the scenes, you just didn't cross him. Or I don't know why that ended up being the case where they were, no one ever really turned against him to maybe even make his chances of going to prison a lot higher. It never really happened. Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of things at play there. Number one is, like you said, he, he was a respected and feared leader. Um, a lot of those guys, especially in kind of that original cohort, grew up in the same neighborhood. A lot of them were related by marriage. It was a very closely knit group. Um, that's not to say that people didn't talk. If you look at some of the early, or I've seen FBI surveillance reports from the you know, from the fifties and sixties where there's one or two people in there that are kind of feeding some information. Uh, but you never had a major turncoat. And also you never really had a major racketeering case in Tampa. Most of the cases were, you know, a gambling case here, a gambling case there, something here. Uh, the only main racketeering case uh, that came out of the seventies uh, ensnared Frank Dechidu, who was the underboss of the family and then some low level associates. Uh, I, I think had the Tampa mob, had that power, say, in the 80s into the 90s when, when the FBI, when you really start seeing guys turn uh, because of these longer sentences and this, you know, these larger racketeering cases, things might have been different. But, but by that time, you know, post-1987, the mob in Tampa starts, you know, assimilating, kind of fading away slowly. And the the big cases aren't made against members. So, the you know, there's not really as much... Um, uh, incentive for someone to become an informant or, you know, turn state's evidence against the mob. Yeah, definitely. And, and the, what, what is the lack of a better term? What is the body count from the beginning of the rise of organized crime in Tampa till the eighties and nineties? How, how many people in your estimation were murdered as a direct result uh, of organized crime in Tampa? Um, between 35 and 40, I would say. Certainly about 20 some that we know of. There's some intimations that some guys disappeared. Um, there's a couple guys that went up to New York once from Tampa and they never came back. Um, so, I, yeah, I would say it's between 35 and 40. It's a good thing I put a list together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now in 2018, now, so now we're about 30 years removed from, you know, 1987, as you described, where it's kind of, they've kind of faded into the background. What, in your opinion, is the current state, if any, of the mob in Tampa and even in greater uh, standing in Florida uh, in general? Yeah, there's not a lot left in Tampa. Most of, you know, there's very few of the old timers alive. Um, a lot of their sons and their, you know, their Nephews and such did not go into the business. Um, you start seeing in the early 90s, a lot of them investing in real estate, kind of moving more into white collar and legitimate businesses. So I, I think it's 
you know, I've heard little inklings that there's still some gambling going on. There's still some, which is to be expected. You know, there's always going to be that vice there. Um, but as a, you know, it's a huge organized enterprise, not really. What was interesting is in the mid nineties, um, there was a, a lot of information from a, a guy named John Mamone, who was a Traficani member in Miami, who said that the, the Gambino family kind of basically absorbed some of the Traficantes uh, in, in the Miami area and maybe to some extent in Tampa. They were Traficantes kind of went under the Gambino family from New York. So that was one theory of what kind of happened. But um, in Florida as a whole, you still have some organized crime activity in South Florida that that area, um, not really in Miami as much, more of that's moved up to uh, Broward in Palm Beach County, West Palm Beach area uh, on the East Coast. But And that's mostly a lot of transplanted guys from New York and Chicago and such. It's, uh, you know, like the mob in the United States, it's not what it was 30 years ago. Um, but yet, you know, here we are in 2018 still talking about it, though it's, it's both surprising that even with all the law enforcement um, uh, activity and the assimilation, you know, that there's still some of that going on. Yeah. And it's, that's what I've, I mean, you don't hear much about it anymore. Um, so, but you never know. Cause I, I never assumed that it's not going on. Cause like I said, what, what, what brought me to your book initially was, you know, living, growing up in Tampa, obviously not a part of that lifestyle, not having any idea and how prevalent it was. And even though, like I said, I grew up in the eighties, it was kind of maybe on the downswing at that time, it was still there, uh, pretty present. And, and Santo, of course, Junior was still alive until the late eighties. Um, so again, Scott, thank you for coming on and, and talking about this. It's a fascinating subject. Obviously everyone is, is fascinated with the mafia. And I think it's cool to kind of discuss an aspect where I think most people outside of Florida would never have an idea. You always think of New York, Chicago, Las Vegas as the areas of mob, uh, influence and control. So it's interesting to know that a, a city like Tampa was really in, in the midst of all of that. Um, where can, uh, people get, uh, your books? Um, where's the easiest way to get them? Uh, all available on Amazon. Uh, and uh, my website is scottditchie.com. That's scott, D-E-I-T-C-H-E.com. You can get links to, to buy all the book on there as well. Perfect. And I highly recommend uh, Cigar City Mafia. Like I said, Scott, I'm going to I'm going to start the silent dawn. So I want to get through that book. Uh, the books are very uh, good and it's a good read and it's a read that you can do uh, very relatively quickly, which is great. I think a lot of people that don't have time, they can really kind of get a, a good sense of what happened in Tampa and your, and your book does a good job of that. And, and, and I highly recommend anyone pick it up. And like I said, I may have you back on after I read, uh, silent Don, I'll definitely read garden state gangland as well. Uh, I was born in New York, but I'm interested definitely in New Jersey. Obviously everybody, I think relates New Jersey to, uh, the Sopranos and uh they're in uh, and that show so i'm definitely going to be looking into that so again i really appreciate you uh coming on and and thank you for all the information oh you're welcome thank you and yeah i'd be happy to come on anytime just let me know again that was my conversation with author scott ditchy hope you enjoyed it as much as i did if you want to get any of his books you can get them on amazon.com again the book we discussed in this episode was cigar city mafia He's also written The Silent Dawn and his latest book, Garden State Gangland. Again, all of those books are available on Amazon.com. Please let me know your thoughts. Uh, again, as I stated on the beginning of the show, please rate and review on iTunes if you listen to the show on iTunes. Or even if you don't, if you have an iTunes account, uh, I would ask, uh, it would be a big favor to me if 
you enjoy the show, just to jump on there real quick, uh, subscribe to the podcast, even if you just throw up a a rating, if you don't have time for a review, I would appreciate a five-star review if possible. If you could um, write a review along with a rating, that'd be great. But if you can, uh, at very least, just jump on and uh, drop a rating on there. Again, this is extremely, extremely helpful in raising the profile of the show. If you are a regular listener to various types of podcasts, whether it's an independent podcast like mine or a larger podcast, uh, you know, some of the bigger ones, uh, WTF, I listen to Revisionist History. Uh, I love those larger podcasts as well. Uh, But of course, being an indie podcaster myself, uh, I enjoy and I'm really getting to enjoy the world of independent podcasts. I've listened to a couple of different ones, uh, such as Conspired, Glenn Thing stuff, and I actually just started listening to an episode of Trace Evidence, which is very interesting, uh, true crime uh, podcast, and I enjoy very much. So again, if you can, rate and review on iTunes, and if you can't review, then just at least leave a quick rating. That would be extremely helpful, and I would be extremely appreciative of doing that. But again, you can also get the podcast on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, or or CastBox. The website is also available anytime you want to download episodes. If you don't use any of the podcasting apps, the website is www.letmebendyourear.com. You can always get episodes there. I do have a YouTube channel where I post my video mini casts when I make those. Uh, the YouTube channel is Let Me Bend Your Ear Podcast. Please follow the show on Twitter. I actually just uh, went over 300 followers. Uh, So the jump from 200 to 300 actually went pretty quickly. So I'm very happy about that. If you're another podcaster out there listening, if you follow me, of course, I'll follow you back. Uh, The Twitter handle is at Bend Your Ear Pod, which is also the handle on Instagram, Bend Your Ear Pod. If you have any suggestions for shows, feedback for me, or just want to ask me a question about something or communicate with me directly, the email for the show is bendyourearpodcast at gmail.com. Now, today's show is quotes about politics, but not really. But I did want to comment a little bit before I signed off today regarding the upcoming midterm elections. I live in Florida and the Democratic gubernatorial debate just occurred a couple of days ago when I watched it and watched the five candidates discuss why they would make the best governor for the state of Florida. And I'm not really going to comment on the debate itself. Uh, Obviously, people outside of Florida listen to this podcast, so... It wouldn't really be relevant to them. But what I do want to say, and the reason I brought it up is there's races all over the country that are going to be decided this November. Primaries are coming up at the end of this month in a lot of states. So this show is going to talk about two things as it relates to politics, or it's going to have two driving themes. We're going to talk about political stories, but the prism that I'm going to discuss them in, one is polarization, which I spoke about in the last episode and how I think it's poisoning our political process. And the second thing I want to add to polarization is engagement. And what I mean by engagement is voter engagement. We get the politicians that we deserve, and I am as guilty of that as anyone. So I'm not sitting here on a soapbox pretending that I've voted in every single local election, every single statewide election, and every single federal election. I have not, and I'm part of the problem. And I know that it is extremely important for all of us, all of us to 
participate in this process. I understand that there is a lot of cynicism. I understand that when you see political commercials or politicians on TV or politicians giving interviews, the first thing that goes to your mind is they always lie. They don't do anything for me. And that turns into why should I even vote? My vote doesn't count. Nothing ever changes. And I understand that philosophy. I completely do. I get why people feel that way. But here's what I would say to that. The reason that nothing ever changes is that in a federal election where you would have the highest turnout, anywhere from 30 to 40% vote. So you're looking at 60 to 70% of eligible voters in the United States in a federal election don't vote. So I've said this in the previous incarnation of this podcast where basically if I vote in an election, I'm voting for two or three other people. So it's almost like my vote counts as three or four votes. When you have such minimal engagement from the voting public, it severely cripples the type of people that are going to run and win. And believe me, here's one thing I will say in the cynicism of politics. They count on the fact that people don't show up. They pay millions and millions of dollars for polling and research. That money is spent for a reason. They know who votes and they know who don't, who doesn't vote. And let me just kind of round it up here. Basically, you have people that vote are older people, middle-aged people, and the lowest turnout, with a couple of exceptions, are young people. So you know for a fact that politicians are not going to cater to young people because they don't vote. They're not going to cater to certain groups or demographics that don't vote or can't help them in any way. Let's take Florida, for example. Florida has a large elderly population. Florida is one of the few states in the country with no state income tax. Now, I know there's probably a lot of progressive Democratic candidates and politicians that would be all for Florida imposing a state income tax. And there may be some benefits to doing that. But I'm telling you right now, no one's ever going to do it. That's a non-starter. If you run with a platform of trying to impose a state income tax, you will never win in Florida. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's just a fact of the matter. And I'm using that as an example because politicians are going to cater to who votes. And if we can get 70 to 80% of the electorate engaged in the political process via voting, you would see, I would think, a sea change and what politicians don't do, what they say they're going to do, and the things that they advocate. If they know that 70 to 80% of the electorate, which would go across men and women, young and old, Democrat and Republican, if they saw that engagement, that would hold them more accountable. These politicians know that they're really only accountable to about 30% of eligible voters. And that's where I think we're failing the system. Congress, nobody likes Congress. Half the country never likes the president, whoever it is. When you become president, 50% of the country automatically doesn't like you. So engagement and the elimination of polarization are the two things that I believe, that I fully believe can revolutionize our political process and make it what it should be, what it was created to be. So as this show evolves and I'm able to hopefully 
get political guests. I haven't done that yet. I am still trying. I will continue to try to get political guests on this show. Uh, I promise you I will do that. I will challenge any political guests on my show to tell me, one, how are they going to combat polarization? And two, what are they going to do for the electorate? And what are they going to do to promote engagement? These will be the two running themes throughout this show, as these are the two running themes throughout my life as it involves my involvement in politics. It's very important. It's cliche to say this, but I will say it. If you watch the news for any, for 15, 20 minutes, any worldwide news outlet, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, pick whichever one you want. And if you see world reporting in other countries where you cannot vote, or if you vote, you may be subject to violence, death, kidnapping, suppression, oppression. There are many countries all over the world that their citizens fight and die for the right to vote. And I know it's a cliche, and I know people that are tuned out to voting in the United States go, well, hey, that's the way it goes. I don't have to vote. It's part of my right not to vote. Yeah, it is. But you should look at it as a duty. And it's something that is a privilege. It's not a right. And if you want better government, you have to do some of the heavy lifting. You can't sit by the sidelines complaining about what's not happening and not get in the game. So again, I just wanted to kind of talk about that. It's something that I will talk about over and over again. Again, polarization and engagement. Those will be the two themes that you will hear on this show. Again, any comments on that or anything else that you've heard today or the interview with Scott, again, you can email the show at bendyourearpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all for listening. If this is the first time you've listened to the show, I really appreciate it. Again, I hope this show will be a springboard uh, for subscribers and downloaders of the podcast. So if you like what you heard, please rate and review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you listen on. And also, if you don't mind, share the show on your social media, on your Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Tell a friend about the show. If you know people that listen to podcasts and are looking for new ones, I see on Twitter all the time. Uh, People looking for podcast recommendations, they have a long drive, or they're caught up on the podcast that they listen to regularly. That happens to me too. You, You binge a podcast and then you catch up on two or three of them and then you don't have anything to listen to, so you seek out new ones. So if you've listened to this one, listened to some previous episodes or this one, and you liked what you heard, uh, please rate and review and please tell a friend. It's really important. It'll really help uh, grow the show. And again, thank you to everyone who's listened. Thank you to all the other indie podcasters that have retweeted my tweets on Twitter that have reached out to me personally. Uh, it's really been encouraging. And again, I'm loving doing this. I'm going to continue to do it. And hopefully the show will just get better and better. So again, thank you all for listening. I hope everyone has a great week and take care. We'll talk to you soon.